don't have to like everything we say. You don't have to listen to us. Funny thing, every time I go through and post one of these, I have to mark whether or not the show's explicit and I can remember if I cussed or what use that word I used. And now I'm thinking about it, listening to this intro. Because some people haven't even caught it yet. Based on what's in the intro, I should probably be marking that on every single one. <laughs> so I'm using the universal word there. Somebody else is, on my behalf. Today we're going to look at some user emails and we're going to discuss, well, you're interviewing an employee or somebody in a similar situation like that. What kind of things they do that may or may not be malicious that are manipulative, that are things we can look for, that they're trying to curry favor or perhaps take advantage of the situation we can identify and get under control. We're also going to talk about micro and macro expressions. I get a couple messages about those. We'll give a brief overview of what they are, why you probably can't see them, at least the micro ones, and I'll tell you about a TV show you can watch if you want to learn more that's got some realistic aspects to it that I probably need to rewatch. I haven't seen it in years, and I really enjoyed it. The last one could have been its own episode, but I decided to roll it up in here. I did find a good article just on happenstance I could have added to reading the news that I will reference to you and try to remember to put in the show notes for you to check out. I'll explain what's bad about it, too, because nobody's perfect. But we're going to take a look at that airman who just got nailed for essentially treason and probably will get prosecuted for that. might be the first time in a while where we've really hit somebody hard on that. We'll see. But we're going to discuss the things in there that are like other investigations in the military that they did the right thing but kind of pawned them off like their unique circumstances when they're in fact a daily occurrence it's not being taken seriously so we'll take a look at those things right here on Crayman, hiding in plain sight Often get, in fact, for the most part, for things like deception, body language, what I mostly get questions about have to do with interviews and interactions in the workplace. Well, I considered workplace stuff initially. I, for some reason, I didn't even think about interviews, and that's probably something I should have been thinking about. But in employee interviews, we want to be able to evaluate our candidates' persuasion techniques and look for any deception among all the other things we're looking for, whatever you're focusing on for this uh, position of employment. These techniques are used by interviewers, but also by the employee in order to curry favor, to change decisions or influence how they might behave. Some of them are just to build rapport. Some are rapport building techniques that are used consciously as manipulative aspects. Some are considered very manipulative by nature, but we can determine perhaps sometimes they're not malicious. We're going to look at some casual ones that you kind of have to use the situation to determine yourself, but to see what the effects they can have that you can watch out for to stay in control of that situation and not end up feeling like you're not in control, which is what the email I got was about not being in control and feeling like they're being taken advantage of. 
While deception involves some intentional misrepresentation of facts, it's not always the case. Sometimes it's just withholding of information. But be aware these tactics can be there, but they understanding them can help you assess your candidate's suitability for the position. The hardest part, though, the one that really takes the experience we've always talked about is no matter how much of this stuff you know, there's always the situation, the person, and what you can determine about their intentions and what you know about them. And this is like the, a lot of times, this is that whole never get a second chance for first impression situation. It might be the only chance they get, and that can make it very difficult. One of the common techniques used is what's called the foot in the door. So the foot in the door involves making a small request, such as asking for some water. Now that seems innocuous and something we should probably give. Before we get into what it is, one of the things to consider then is to leave where they can easily have access to it or you can gesture to it if they need it is, you know, a pitcher with some water and a glass or a bottle of water instead of asking or offering them or waiting for them to ask. Just make it available and make it known that that's there for them. That is the most common way to do the foot in the door and it takes it right off the table. It's a way to establish rapport, but the rapport purpose for this is to increase the likelihood that the person who's conducting the interview will agree to larger requests later on. So that's to say that when they do this, it doesn't mean that's what they're doing. But somebody is going to try this. They're going to use this as a foot in a door, something along these lines. Build rapport so that later they can ask for something more significant. One of the more common ones today being asked is to work from home. Like I watched this uh, lady. She does these um, YouTube shows, clips and stuff about they're funny. And she plays all the characters and conversations they have at work and how to deal with them. And she even does ones where I think it's her husband or something's like, he says something like, how do you professionally say, stop sending me these fucking emails. And then she like rattles off the response. And and she does one that has to do with working at home and how that's changed things now and people that have quit over this. So there's, there's things like that. It will be that noticeable of a jump where it'll be some minor requests to gain rapport and then probably way too early without escalating it in a reasonable manner, they will swing with this swing for the fences with this big request. That's probably misplaced for the position anyway. That'd be the most obvious one that you could see, and is probably the most common. But it doesn't mean you're always going to see it. Another one we talked about in the past a little bit is called mirroring. This is just they mirror your body language and speech patterns to build rapport, so that you're look. It's like you're looking in a mirror. It's going to be pretty close to exact. It's very similar to the idea of what we call matching. It creates a sense of familiarity, and it's often done with some of these other techniques of rapport building. I do it for rapport building when I need to all the time. Again, doesn't mean it's malicious, but you need to be aware that it's there. It's there to establish trust and, and make the interviewer, make you more receptive to their message. But the thing is, you can do this too. And if you're concerned about these types of techniques being used against you, and you're not sure if they're being used against you, then initiate them yourself. One of the things you can determine right away, especially if you've interviewed people, is a high degree of accuracy, whether or not you think they're nervous for being there or uncomfortable, and you can use some of these techniques to build rapport for them. Those usually aren't the people you have to worry about. It's the ones that are too smooth, too casual, sound nice, you get a good feeling out of them, but if you think of it about like reading these um, pieces of news we talk about, there actually is any substance there, and an objective person goes, yeah, I can see why you like them, but they're nothing. If you got somebody like that in your corner, that's good because you need somebody who's going to play devil's advocate for you. Another one we can look at is for any inconsistencies in their story. Their answers to different questions probably don't match up. It's it's a sign of um, deception. So one of the ways to explain this, I think I did in the interrogation podcast a couple years ago, 
we would do repeat and control questions. One of the ways we might do it, and I always use the family tree as an example. When you know your immediate family, and, and usually their immediate family pretty well, at least in the United States, you typically know we're not as family-oriented as a lot of other nations out there. Even some of you that are listening to the show, we're really not. But most families are, are at least, even if they're not that close, they know their aunts and uncles and their grandparents on both sides, and at least know that. And we found in many cultures that's generally the case. And, and cultures that have close-knit families and strong family bonds and then, you know, the kids grow up, they always take care of the parents types. They know all this stuff really well. So some of the ways we would do things is, you know, your mother has, we'll say two brothers, you know, the oldest and the youngest. And we might say, what's your mother's um, oldest brother's name? And then later on, we might say, uh, what's your, your grand maternal grandmother's first son? Who is that? We might say something like that coming at it from two different directions. You know, which brother is Uncle Bob? And we'll say he's number two. And you say, what's the name of your grandmother's youngest son? Seems like a weird question. And we wouldn't ask them back to back. They'd be asked later in a way that we could try to make sense or definitely could make sense when we're going over it. A lot of times the easiest way to cover it would be to make it clear we're trying to establish some sort of family lineage. And then we could come at it that way. It worked really good against certain organizations, certain types of people that had these stories that were... Man, they were broad. I mean, left and right, they had a lot of stuff to say for a cover story. But you start drilling down one or two layers, they had nothing. Whereas other guys were the exact opposite. We'd have, we could find out we could go layers deep. They had all kinds of backstory. But we went left and right on a little bit, they had nothing. So it's a way to look at it as any stories like that, especially um, finding them in anything based on their interview, especially if you've done your reference calls beforehand. I don't know how it works. I've always thought people did the reference calls afterwards for people that were considering. If I have a business where I'm hiring people and I end up doing that, people that I choose to actually do a face-to-face interview or have a face-to-face interview, one of the things we'll be doing is reference phone calls prior to to make sure there's nothing we find out why we might not even want to interview them. But that'll give us more information to work with based on the stuff they put in there. And a lot of interviews I would do, I'd take some similarities to some stuff I did in Arizona working for the military that have to do with scenario-based questions. And you can always look at those scenario-based questions as ways to gauge truthfulness and accuracy from these repeat and control questions. So that's another thing to do. One of the things to look for, like we talk about people that are nervous or anxious, remember that when you're dealing with those people, while they can be manipulative, they typically aren't. And it's to understand why that's happening. And that's really what you're looking for. Outright asking them can work, but that actually can put them on the spot and feel like they're even more anxious and more nervous. They're already on the spot because they're there for an interview. You know, it's like the idea of a bad test taker. A lot of people are great candidates and great employees that are just bad test takers, meaning bad interviewees. They just don't do it well. And they do things people often think are signs of deception based on when they fidget, how they fidget, what they're touching. You know, if they're using a self-soothing method, like they recently got married and they're massaging the wedding finger, they think it's deception. It's not. It's self-soothing. Or the eye contact thing. People think avoiding eye contact is a sign of deception. It's not. More often than not, it's environmental deception or anxiety. Maintaining too much eye contact is actually your sign of deception. We've talked about that before. So these might help you make more informed decisions, but it's a better way to look for things that I can identify this is happening and then determine what you want to do about it, how you want to respond usually with some sort of similar behavior in say a physical display or perhaps how you're going to deal with some sort of inconsistency you think you're seeing with questioning. 
And through that process and talking with them, you usually can make a fairly decent judgment on whether or not you think they're purposely being malicious in attempts or even if they're being intentional to build rapport, that doesn't make it bad. So that's something to pay attention to. Another one we got asked about are micro and macro expressions. I get asked about these a lot and how they work because I don't, I don't even do whole shows on them. They're very difficult to see. So if you're interested in this, when we're done talking about it, um, what you want to look up on Netflix or wherever, old show with Tim Roth and it called Lie to Me. There's a few seasons. It's based on a real guy named Paul Ekman, I believe is his name. I think he still has a website. He's written some books. He does a lot on body language. Like everybody, some of us always disagree with others. There's things about his stuff that I don't agree with. Some stuff I've never experienced or some stuff that he has. I think his level of experience far exceeds mine. My thoughts on it are just that a few things I have tried, I've had almost 100% failure rate, a few dozen or a few hundred interactions. And they're not things I lean towards, whereas there's other things I think are gold. I've even, I think, um, what was it? The use of illustrators, talking with your hands, the way I really got to understand how to explain that to people I learned from him. Not personally, just material that he's created. But the, the movie or TV show, I think, is kind of based on him. It's a little more Hollywood than probably what his life was by any means. But they explain there what it is. And so one of the things I think they do well at conveying is very few people have any natural ability of seeing this without training. And even with seeing training, it's difficult. And even in the show, they show you that they're very, very tiny, small movements. And the guy, Tim Roth, like he's up in your face looking for him because they, they have to see him that way. They're, they're hard. You can't see him from several feet away when they're micro. Macros, you can. Micros are very difficult. And in the show, they blow them up on TVs and big screens, not like 50-inch TVs, like 80-inch, 100 inches, to really look and see, see what they can see there. You know, he does a test in the beginning, like the first episode with a girl works at TSA hires where he shows her brief glimpses, screenshots real fast, like boom, 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 and she has to say what she sees. What those images are showing are macro expressions, but she's only getting a brief second to see them to see if her ability is really that good at being able to identify them. And that's somebody that can be trained to see the micro expressions if they can't already do it. And we've talked about that before. The most consistent macro sections are the uh, universal facial features we've talked about in the past. But they're, they're types of expressions that convey different amounts of emotion and information. What they're really about is emotion. They're not necessarily isolated to mean deception. Like all things in deception, things are in clusters. We use these with other things. But they're brief and they're involuntary. To control, micro expressions can't be done as far as science knows today. Macros can be forced. They also can just be conscious. Conscious doesn't mean forced. So people that are generally happy that smile a little bit, that's a macro expression. It's conscious. They, they might even purposely choose to look at somebody's smile because what they just, the cute kid just did the thing, right? So it's a conscious thing, but it's not forced like a fake smile. And so that's kind of the difference there. They can reveal these true emotions that people are trying to conceal. So that's part of the concept of looking at the, um, the group of items here, the cluster, is that how we know they're going to, they're trying to conceal them is that it's a contradiction to other things about body language or speech or speech patterns or tone of voice or words that they're using it's more difficult but similar idea to the person that says no but nods their head yes the macro that it's not a macro expression to nod but that body language contradicts the statement and so we go there's a contradiction they're trying to conceal so that's they're very difficult and they can't be they can't really be controlled. Everybody doesn't. A lot of people, when you explain them to them, think they can see them, but they can't. The part of the brain that controls the emotions is called the limbic system, and that's what controls these on your face, and this is why they can't be 
Um, they can't really be controlled. They can't really be manipulated. The, the micros, because they're so fast. They're so quick in a moment in time. The macro expressions are just the opposite. They're still there. They're still about feelings and emotions. They can be forced. They can just be conscious, but not forced. Forced is usually means fake. They're prolonged. They can last for several seconds. They're intentional quite often to convey all kinds of things, such as some of our universals that we've seen, like happiness, sadness, anger, and fear, for example, or contempt. You know, the, the frown, the intense look of anger, the big smile. We are, see these so much and get told what they are so much, we universally recognize them, and, but they are macro expressions because they're on the face. These are specific to facial movements and features, and they're not just around the mouth. There's things around the eyes, between the eyes, up in the the lobe areas, um, down to your chin, even on your cheeks, depending on what depth of training and what you're able to see. Part of things like me having this much facial hair can affect the ability for certain expressions to be noticed or noticed more easily, especially micros. It's not why I have a beard. I'm just aware that that exists. They're a very important part of nonverbal communication, in my opinion. They're one of the most difficult things to work with, well, specifically micros. You have to be right up in a person's face. I never really even paid attention to those at all when I did interviews in Fort Huachuca, when we were putting people in the JSOC and interviewing officers, I was too far away from them. I was several feet, you can't see them from there. So they're subtle is the other thing about micros. They're subtle because they're so small. That's what makes them difficult, they're so fast. Whereas macros are very overt, even intentional. Understanding them both is what can help kind of improve communication and interpersonal relationships. If you knew how to handle conflict and things correctly, let's say with this person you could do it correctly and you could see their micro expressions and know them like that, oh my God, relationships would change or be there, there'd be a lot more murders. It'd be one of the two, but it would be crazy what would happen. But they are, a, <laughs> they say eyes are the window to the soul. Micro expressions are the window to the soul. They're the window to the real emotions, the true feelings and intentions of an individual. So being brief, what we want to understand is, is that they last, the micro expression, the main things to understand is they are one quarter to one fifteenth of a second. One quarter would be a long one, one fifteenth. That is fast. They're also subtle and small and hard to see. They're spontaneous and it takes, while a few people have some natural ability to kind of see them, to really understand and find them, takes a lot of specialized training. But they are the general emotion, genuine emotions. The main ones too, happiness, sadness, anger, fear, surprise, disgust, contempt are, are kind of main ones there, which are very helpful if you know how to utilize those with everything else in a cluster. There's been extensive research and studies by all kinds of people that link these to specific emotional states. It's kind of an uncontestable. While it is so difficult, a lot of people don't accept a lot of body language stuff. Even psychologists have some minimal training in it or, or quite a bit. But microexpressions are the one thing that if you could convey to a courtroom the effectiveness of the training and how it works to get them to understand it, I think it would be the most useful tool in, in a courtroom. But something like that, I, I don't know that it's ever been used very much. One of the most uh, significant applications, though, is the research into detect deception. I think because my, my personal opinion is one of the things we always look for, you know, the bad more than the good. So that makes it more interesting to look for detecting deception. But it's it is a true contrast. It's a conflict of showing your true emotions that conflict with something else that's happening that we've identified. I think that makes it more intriguing, but also easier to identify. We don't even look for micro expressions when they support the things that are going on. Trained guys do sometimes, and that's how they find the ones that are 
that are, are saying the opposite. Because it's not like you're showing 10 micro expressions and because and, and, you're lying, all 10 of them are going to be wrong. It could just be one of them. So just like many body language things I've expressed, you, you see one thing, that one thing isn't indicative of, of lying or deception. You need to be able to see and hear all these other things and put them together and realize that there could be several things that are saying true and one thing says lie and that might be enough to make the whole thing a lie. And then you could see nine things that say deception, one thing that says true, but realize it, it actually is true. It's similar to how I explained uh, the storytelling in Two Truths and a Lie at the end in the conclusion episode when I discussed what really was going on there. I think the biggest issue with using micro-expressions, especially in a legal sense, is it's probably the most contested of all forms of body language to my understanding from the studies I've read. It takes so much training and experience. People that don't understand it can test it about misrepresentation and, and reliability. That's a real thing, but it's hard. I think it's hard for anybody to argue that when you're not an expert in it. And at the same time, when you're an expert in it, it's going to be hard to convince people that what you're saying is pretty much going to be the case. Now, looking at this article, we're going to be discussing the airman who has now been arrested. And there's a total of 15 Air National Guardsmen disciplined in the Discord server leak. That's actually the title of the article. I believe this is the one where, because the only other one I heard about Discord is probably this one, where they're playing video games and arguing about whether or not he had access to classified information, probably something silly like that, as in really stupid. What I want to point out about this article is, I'll link it in the show notes, but for the good and the bad side about it, this would be an example of a much better, a good article in the way it was written, how it's researched, how it's worded. It's from the Military Times, a couple things to know, that it's military-controlled newspaper. It is not what you call government controlled. They tend to write things very professionally and in this manner, it's very consistent with what's called uh, military style of writing. They avoid a lot of the overuse of adjectives. They avoid a lot of the use of subjective truth or innuendo as well as uh, feelings and emotions. It, so it has kind of the objective truth side going toward. Some of the downsides though, when the references, like even the first paragraph, they have three linked references you can go to. Okay, but they're not, <laughs> I don't think they're, I don't call them references. They're not, they're references, they're not additional sources. They're citing themselves. Two of them are to their own previous writings, which is very common for them to do. I imagine it's policy to a certain degree within, within the bureaucracy of this paper. So there's probably that. It's, there's probably concern about endorsing any other agency, just, you know, any news outlet just by linking to them. That, that would be a realistic thing I'd believe to be true if, if somebody told me it. But that, that's two of them. The third one's to an official Air Force website with a press release or some sort of statement. But their documents are often like that. And then you go to, like, say you go to one of them and it's another military time site, and then they have some site of reference. You go to that, it's another military. They, it's over and over just ladder links to themselves. Uh, the upside is there's tons of stuff you can read out there on them. And, and when you read up some of this stuff about this guy and then what happened there, you'll get there's a lot more information and facts you can get from this specific article to research or look and see that's there. People aren't writing them out. But you can use this as a comparison of at least the objective information that's available compared to how other people are writing stuff. So it's a good uh, reference piece to use to like be like, oh, this is if, if you didn't know Military Times was like this all the time, but it still would work. You go, oh, this is a very objective article, not a lot of fancy, you know, extra adjectives. They're not trying to sensationalize here. We got a really good solid data. It's written by a military organization about a military situation. All the stuff they're willing to mention is a lot. And you can use it to, to bounce it off other stuff. So other than that, I'll, I'll say you can look through, you can go through the process here, look at all this other stuff. The failing of it's going to be those additional sources. 
But what I wanted to point this out because I got asked about it was about about this guy, some of the things in here. I want to compare this to a year or two ago in Fort Hood, Texas, where there were some sexual assaults and rapes and things that went on. They relieved a bunch of people, did these investigations. It went before Congress, and at the end of the day, they handled everything correctly but one when they came out and said, we're basically endorsed the idea that was unique to that installation, when that is a day-to-day thing that happens in the United States military everywhere. They're ignoring the problem. They don't care. And this is another situation when it comes to classified information. This talks about this guy. They took action against 15 members. This guy's name is uh, Airman First Class Jacks Texaria or something like that. He's, he's a young guy, 21, really low ranking. They turned up four separate instances where he was observed looking at or discussing intelligence a person in his role would have no business accessing. Based on how this article is written, the information I saw and, and how public it's going, my guess is this was at least an Article 32 investigation and a lot of the writing in here probably comes directly out of those investigations because when guys do those, especially if they've done them a lot or even if they've had no experience, they use other ones to look at for langu- acceptable language. Some of the language in here is exactly how those investigations are written. So that's how they got some of this stuff. They probably saw or had access to it or at least were given basically the idea of sound bites but in written form. So let's see. So it's stuff he'd have no business accessing. And that's when it comes to like, he wasn't spying on like for anybody who was doing his own dumb stuff, but things we look for are placement and access. We look for people that have placement and would reasonably have access. We don't want people that shouldn't have access. So this guy would be a bad source if he was somebody who was handling him because he's doing things he has no business accessing. It says his supervisors, plural, were aware of the issues, yet chose not to report them to security officials until months into his activities, according to an investigation that was released on Monday. That is so common in all things in the military, but especially this. People, I don't care what they say, they do not take that stuff at these lower tactical levels seriously. At the company company or equivalent in the other branches, and even the battalion or equivalent, they just don't. One of the quotes, quotes said, had any of these members come forward, Security officials would likely have facilitated restricting systems, facility access, and alerted the appropriate authorities, reducing the length of depth of the unauthorized and unlawful disclosures by several months. I think that's a good statement having there to use to prosecute him, but I also think it's a flat-out lie. The way it's worded basically means local security officials probably would have done these things, and then bigger security officials would have came in and made all this happen, and they would have reported to the real officials, and no because it was a chain of command that covered this up and they would have continued to do so. It would have taken these guys going outside their air or wing command to like in the army be the equivalent of the 902nd MI or to their investigative division, maybe OSI, and making that happen without alerting anybody in their chain of command, which if you're out there in the military is exactly how you handle it because they will always cover it up. This stuff is treated exactly the way sexual assaults and rapes and all that stuff around EO are treated in the military. They are covered up. You never, ever, ever want to involve anybody in any command where the leadership hierarchy, highest ranking officers are in the range of, um, for officers anywhere up to 05, you want to at least the 06 level and probably the general level supporting offices to do it. The 05s and below will always, they will always blow it off, cover it up. They'll try to have secret meanings and do stuff like that. It's, it's never going to fix anything. Now, this also showed workspaces were inadequately inspected and they were in inconsistent guidance, was inconsistent guidance for reporting security breaches. So they weren't adequately inspected, which means they had a lot of failures because they would have done an inspection. They didn't have the proper guidance for security breaches. That's their passing the buck there in that story. But it also shows that security officials weren't taking the job seriously. Commanders weren't taking the job seriously. 
which means every day-to-day stuff that we're taking seriously, and that's fairly standard. Doesn't mean every single place is doing it, but enough of them. And and no matter how good they're doing it for the regular military, some of them are dealing with this this kind of crap. There's something they're doing. So it calls out the 102nd Intelligence Support Squad, and that's who he worked for. Um, let's see, it says it created ambiguity around whether the tech support airmen were meant to be accessing classified material. So basically what they discovered from the investigation is when they were going after more or less the leadership, they were trying to cover their own asses because they knew they were they were in it too. They knew they were part of it. So this guardsman, he's facing six federal criminal charges of unauthorized disclosure on the espionage to which he pleaded not guilty. Based on everything they had on him, it would have been easier on him just to plead guilty and get it over with. He's, he's going to prison. He better go to prison for a long time. Let's see. And I'll say this straight, straight out is one of the most offensive things I've ever said on this podcast is how seriously I take this stuff. Nope, not going to do it. I already went back and re-recorded over it. It would. If you're a friend of mine who has direct access to me, go ahead and contact me. I'll tell you exactly what I was going to say there. But I, it's the one time I'm going to censor myself. I think, I think I would have. I think I'd pay for it pretty hard on this podcast if I've said it. But yeah, they this should be adequately prosecuted, adjudicated, and dealt with, and then. He should be imprisoned. Now it says later in October during one of the scrutinized, now scrutinized, wasn't before briefings, he was asking detailed questions and discussing select top secret information he did not have a need to know. There was a memorandum memorandum drafted for that, memorandum for record, but the incident was actually not reported, which means it's similar to like a counseling, it's a different type of thing, but they would have wrote it, probably made him aware it was there, don't do it again, and then they shoved it in their drawer and said, we'll keep it out of your official file. I've only done that a few times and it was for very minor stuff, hoping it to be a motivator for somebody and it either didn't matter or it failed. And I've seen people do it for really big things that never should have. People are screwing up and you're in the military and government service and you know better, you do up the writings for them and then you submit it where it needs to go. And this stuff's happening more and more often and it's becoming a big problem. And it's because leaders are not doing what they need to do. They're not following the rules themselves, and all these people deserve to be relieved. And I guarantee you, based on how things are done, there's a hell of a lot more of them than probably should have been. It said, let's see, what else we got? In January, another coworker observed him accessing intelligence. And the memorandum was drawn up on that. And they, the concerns were minimized. People just trying to shove it to the side, cover their ass, or just downplaying it because they weren't taking it seriously. His superiors were unaware he had been posting information he accessed on a Discord server called Thug Shaker Central. Thug Shaker Central for six months. I think it's been shut down now. Um, let me see. Yeah, the Pentagon. It got to the point where the Pentagon acknowledged it back in April and the FBI arrested him in April. It says his unit environment contributed to his ability to remove and leak classified information. That's a sound solid statement basically saying... He's guilty of sin, but these other people are responsible for it, for, for it too. The 15 disciplinary men, you can see some of the names in here, but there's two colonels, two 06s. This is why I said 06, a minimum level you go to, probably higher. Those wing and group commanders were relieved of duty in April, soon after his arrest, as well as more junior officers and non-commissioned officers, totaling 15. They found the oversight program was compliant, but lacking. Nothing noting many airmen had yet to complete information operations training, which, great, but it's bullshit. 
and supervisors were not consistent with reporting violations of origin. That's the part that matters. Those IO trainings and stuff, they're all online check to block things. They're, they're all stupid. It's like EO training, all the stuff they still do. It's all stupid. It's all check the block. They don't take it seriously. Then, but it did say the unit is no longer handling sensitive information. The unit, <laughs> the unit was not allowed to deal with sensitive information anymore. It includes classified information. I don't know what's going to happen with that unit. That, at, at a minimum, it's some sort of stand down. New command and leadership will come in. They'll actually really try to train and educate these guys. If they even try to remotely take it seriously, they'll do something that they probably should do for the whole military. I mean, I was in a unit, one of the many units this happened to, where there were so many suicides, our entire brigade stood down, and we went through training for like two weeks. You know what they did? They tried to standardize that training in the Army. It didn't last long. You know why? Because it took too long to do in the day, and people didn't like that. Well, that's a shitty attitude, but guess what? The training sucked anyway. They weren't really trying to do anything, and they were taking out-of-work dirtbag soldiers who didn't have a job to put them in charge of it. That's how they treat this stuff. They don't care. The point is, it's a rampant problem. We've talked about this before, but this could have been considered the year of espionage. I went through and just to look through when I was doing the one on China and, and, and the articles and all the stuff that they've been doing, just looking at what's gone on in the United States with our own employees and citizens and, and especially members of the military, current and former. There was quite a bit of stuff. Like I probably, I don't know what I've, I guessed I could have done 15 or 20 espionage and news stories this year, which I didn't do. And I, I, some of them I should do. And when I get a chance, I'll go back and look at them. I'm not going to do them all, but I'm going to see if there's anything anything uh, specific in there we can use as teaching points as we've done on the end to focus on kind of the how-to gray man side of how these things happen. Because a lot of them were people that had handlers that were dealing with stuff overseas that were being paid and that were spying. So we'll, we'll definitely take a look at that, and I'll let you know how that goes. That being said, I love these little questions and stuff to come through that I don't quite have enough to do a full show on, but I can do short little segments like this and put together a little three-segment show. I know you guys like them. People tell me that all the time. So send me more. There's no such thing as a dumb question. There's just ones you don't ask that I don't have a chance to tell you are dumb or, or probably they're probably good. <laughs>